Good morning, and welcome back to Friends of Dorothy, the Patreon-exclusive podcast. My name is Peter... Peter? My name is B. Peterson, I am your host, and with me as always is... <laughs> Mark Edward Hoyk. And if you're listening to The Screen's Margins, then we know that you're a decent person, and decent people love USS Steel. And people who <laughs> love USS Steel love to clean their USS Steel with Lux Toilet Soap. Lux Toilet Soap. It's the best thing for your Steel's complexion. All right. <laughs> I had to get that out of the way. That was my favorite. I think that might have been like my favorite little bit about this whole endeavor we had on the old maid. Is oh. old radio ads are just the best. Have you ever spent any extended amount of time listening to old radio programs? Not a ton, but um, but my it's maybe not it's not like the best film or anything, but it's one of the films that I know every line to, and it's one of like the films that I can pretty much watch whenever. It's like one of those comfort films for me. Is George Clooney's Good Night and Good Luck um, with David Strathair and his Edward R. Murrow, and it's the story of the McCarthy the McCarthy battle and all this stuff, and it's and it's great, but it's also an ode to like old TV, and I love how like Alcoa is just like a thread throughout that film and we see the ads and then half at the halfway point through the film it just shows a commercial for Kent cigarettes and and I just love the bit how they is like and one thing that I found especially promising is that viewers of the person to person program are not easily susceptible to advertising which is why when I say that Kent cigarettes smoke filter best, then we know that you will believe us. And it's just like, oh my word, this ad. It's like, Kent filters best. It's definitely a holdover. Uh, when I was in middle school, I went through a huge old time radio phase. I was okay. buying tapes of episodes of... Uh, various series and various genres so like i had a few episodes of suspense was my personal favorite but i was collecting the the uh berg uh, edgar bergen and charlie mccarthy shows and uh, the wc fields broadcasts and you know uh, eventually a couple episodes of the shadow and the lone ranger and but i had two tapes worth of old radio commercials and there is, and even to this day, so much of, it's interesting how they've worked their way in with people who still have no idea where it originates from, like uh, the fact that uh, uh, one of, one of a, a big product in the 30s and 40s was Carter's Little Liver Pills, and their, their slogan was, take two, they're small, and it's long after that product has gone out of production if you still use the phrase take two they're small it just still works among people <laughs> you know, that, that it's just imbued itself but yes the uh, as as rod serling once fumed before he started working on the twilight zone uh sponsorship in radio and television was so domineering you could not have soldiers ford a river if your sponsor is chevrolet yeah no so and by the way in case you don't know why we went on this tangent so the film that we're talking about today is the old maid we're finally getting to it i thought we were gonna watch this like maybe on three different separate occasions and episodes previous but no we're, we're ending because 
we're pretty much out of the available films that Zoe Akins uh, uh, wrote. And the film that we're talking about today, she actually didn't write. Um, she didn't write the adaptation, but it is an adaptation of her most famous play, the one that she won the Pulitzer Prize for, the 1935 uh, uh, play, The Old Maid. And so in addition to watching the 1939 film directed by Edmund Golding, um, of the adaptation of the old maid, uh, we also to go back to try and find the root of maybe her her words, if you will. Um, we also listened to some radio plays um, adaptations of it um, that were just they're just available on YouTube, and so we specifically listened to two. One from also from 1939, um, which uh, was presented by Lux uh, Radio Theater, who would love to tell you about their soap. Um, and then also a 1946 uh, uh, radio play that was brought to you by U.S. Steel, um, and so yeah, and so we've 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 kind of we've gone all out for our for our 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 season finale, if you will, of Friends of Dorothy, um, and and I think it's I think it's the perfect film to go out on because I mean. We've talked before how Zoe Akins likes to, uh, uh, how shall we put it, uh, work from the same emotional beats. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Here, it, this, this is, The Old Maid is the ultimate Zoe Akins story. And, uh, well, a couple things. Uh, one, uh, we should bring up that uh, The Old Maid originates from a novella by right. Edith Wharton. Right, from 1924. Which was not as chock full of uh, detail as uh, her adaptation is. That it's just kind of the bare bones of the what, what comes into play in the story. But it also kind of serves as a bit of prequel to uh, Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence. In okay. that there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of characters who at least in the Wharton version, uh, reappear in, in Age of Innocence. And secondly, it is a darn good thing that uh, there was no such thing as Twitter when Zoe Akins was writing. Because for all the grief that we give Aaron Sorkin, imagine what it would be like is, oh, gee, another broken-hearted mother story. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, How no... original, Zoe. <laughs> Yeah, um, this is this is the thing with after after watching all of these films from Zoe Akins, what I need to know is where her secret child is because she's got to have one. She's got to have one. Um, so, all right, the old maid. Um, no, it's not. It's not about the card game. Um, the old maid is the story of two. Um, well, I think they're they're cousins. Um, they're two two cousins. We have Charlotte and we have uh, Delia, and Char and it's the story of Charlotte who uh, mothers a child out of wedlock. The father is out of the picture. The father is who Delia once loved, and then it's the story of Sh Charlotte trying to keep her child while Delia in in assisting that superficially um, also manages to essentially steal away the child and become the mother as Charlotte watches on. And, and it's, 
and it's set over 20 years um and 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 so that that's basically the story and so you can already know like if you if you've been listening to this podcast you already know where where the connections are with zoe akins and and it's yeah um first of all um the film so oh, okay so how do you want it to go about do you want to do you, should we just talk about the film first and then talk about the radio dramas and the different the differences between all of the versions or should we just or should we go through the through all of them beat by beat because you know they all roughly follow the same structure uh, well let's talk about the film first because uh by the very nature of these uh radio adaptations they're extremely condensed a lot of things have either been omitted or altered along the way, and you know, one uh, one is probably even closer to what Aikens had in mind than the other one is. Right. But uh, like, let but let's start with uh, the the story at large since it's probably closest to the play. Yeah. So, well, I mean, so I just gave the the basic uh, uh, outline of the plot, but so, um, let, so if in talking about the film, so the film is set, the 1939 film is set in. It starts out in 1861, which is not where the novella, when the novella and the other uh, uh, play at the then the radio adaptations are set. They are set in from the thirties to the fifties of the 1800s. Um, but, but in the film, we start in 1861. The war is about to break out. Like the first shot of the film is Fort Sumner just happened. Um, and so we're at the outbreak of the war. And as this is happening, Delia is getting married. Um, she is getting married uh, to, to, is it Joe or James? Joe, Joe, it's Joe Ralston, right? It's not, it's not Jim Ralston. They they really should have given the 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 two Ralstons different different names more different names than Joe and Jim. Well, part of the point is that the Ralstons are not interesting people, so of course they yeah. would have you know boring bland ass names as Joe and Jim. But I think she's marrying Joe, right? But yeah, yes, it is. Uh, Jim, it is Jim that Delia is marrying, and then okay, no, so it's Jim. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, de- yes. Delia is engaged to Jim. She had a sweet. She had a sweetheart named Clem, who she was deeply in love with. But he went away, and she got tired. She got tired of waiting for him, and decided to marry Jim Ralston because you know he's you know well healed, and she'll be established. And of course, wouldn't you know it? On the the big day, that's the day that uh, that Clem is coming back into town and thinking, oh, I can just walk and pick up where I started. Right. And so, yeah, at the opening of the film, we are, and this entire this entire story is basically set like half of the movie is set at on the days of weddings or on the eves of weddings. And so the opening of the film is she is getting ready to go down to get married. And we should say this is Miriam Hopkins, um, uh, playing Delia Lovell. And then, um, and then in comes Betty Davis 
as Charlotte Lavelle. And this is my only, this is, I, over the course of Dance Dorothy Dance and Friends of Dorothy, I've been being introduced to all of these, you know, classic Hollywood stars, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, uh, Clara Bow, uh, 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 Greta Garbo. And, and the only other film that I'd seen with Betty Davis, I have actually seen something with her, but it's, of course, it's all about Eve. Um, and, and I, of course, know the famous line about how, when all of all about Eve came out, that like uh, was it Ebert that said that getting old was a good career move for for Betty Davis, or was that another critic? Um, I I think it would have come that kind of line would have come earlier than than Ebert. He uh, he was probably yeah. just requoting someone else. Yeah, but um, so I had already seen the only context for for Betty Davis that I knew was after her career move of getting older. And so we get to see Betty Davis be young. And then funnily enough, we eventually get to see her play old Betty Davis by the end of this film, which I thought was funny. It's like, Oh look, young Betty Davis. Oh, nope. She's old again. Um, but, uh, but Betty Davis comes in and is like, yo, Clem's he's, he's back. He's, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming at the 1030 train. He's going to come to see you. And she's like, Oh shoot. does he know? And like, no, he doesn't know. And, and so it was like, you go off to the train station, you meet up with Clem Spender, who in this, who in the film was played by George Brent. Um, and go, go cut him off because I don't want him, you know, flipping out. Um, and so Betty Davis runs off. Um, and also there's a bit in the opening scene about how he's like, you need something, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And she's got the old and the new in her dress. Um, she gets the bar. She gets a garter um, from, from her maid, um, which is borrowed, but she still needs something blue. And she, and so Betty Davis runs off to the train station, meets up with, with, with Clem Spender and, um, and tells him the news and he's not happy. And so he goes, he goes to uh, uh, he, sh- he shows up anyway. At even though Betty Davis is like, please don't make a scene. He shows up anyway. Um, comes into the room, and they have it out. And he gives her a necklace, a blue like it's got a blue pendant. It's a cameo, is what it is. That's right. Yeah. Um, and and so that's the opening of the film. And off she goes to get married. Clem Spender runs off in a hush in a huff but charlotte follows him it's like no club come back and then we get a scene where it turns out that betty davis was in love with clem spender all along that charlotte was always loved uh 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 clem but he was always had the heart for delia and so turns out <laughs> we get a cut to like 2 a.m. and she's coming home and the maid's like where have you been and he's like oh don't worry about it it's not like we're under the production code or anything um which by the way this whole movie i imagine would have been difficult to get through the production code because the whole film is about an illegitimate child um you know come out of fornication like the whole the whole play is based on an, a sinful act so that's something <laughs> yeah well uh, uh the the a film adaptation had been kicking around for a while that uh, according to uh the afi uh ernst lubich had initially optioned it and was going to make it for paramount in uh 1935 and it was it you know it, obviously it moved to uh, to another studio and he dropped out of the picture along the way. 
So, in so when the play was first optioned for film, they probably uh, were when it was going to be made at Paramount. They might have found a more uh, you know looser way of getting around that primary plot point. Once it you know decamped for Warner Brothers, they were likely tougher, even though they did get across uh, th- that primary detail. What is interesting, and here's something where we, c- we-, we can talk about uh, the-, the radio adaptations, is that in, the fi- in this film version, Clem is- has enlisted, well, he's been drafted, and he's going off to fight the Civil War. Right. And Whereas in the in the uh, 1939 Lux edition, he's uh, he and Charlotte have gone off on a cruise, and he dies before they barely get out of the harbor. <laughs> and 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 then in the 1946 U.S. Steel adaptation, uh, he's he's just gone. Yeah, he's just out of the picture. Um, like, we is he still in Italy? We don't know. <laughs> right, and so. So it is so and and, you know, the big thing is that he dies in the Civil War and the 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 plan was probably going to be, okay we had one night of sin, but we're going we're going to get married and everything will be proper. And, oh, he got killed. And so much for that plan. Yeah, um, I think I think at we I mean, we see um, there's this big scene with a whole bunch of extras, you know, at the train station, all the Union soldiers uh, going off to war. And there's war tunes playing in the score, which I mean, I'll talk more about the score later, which I thought was just splendid for this film. Um, But uh, uh, Delia sees uh, Charlotte, you know, wishing uh, Clem goodbye and and we and we hear uh, that she's like I will wait for you and so it is it is her intention I, I believe it's their intention in the film to to get married once once he's once uh, uh, once he's returned from the war and yeah and and then we get that you know time jump um, and this this movie again like Zoe Akins with the time jumps or with the, there's so many time jumps in this movie um uh, but we get this great montage of 1860 1861 1862 1864 and then we pan over this graveyard and there's Clem Spender's grave and then bam emancipation proclamation and bam the war's over and it's just i i think for me this was like in terms of an adaptation choice uh by the way Casey Casey Robinson who like wrote Captain Blood and like he was he was a famous writer, um, well-established writer. I think that was um, out of the adaptation choices the one that I think I liked the most was resituating it around the war, because it 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 did feel like there was like an actual reason like it the the continuity made sense as to why Clem was separated and then killed because like I mean if it's just like a random accident or it's not really mentioned. Um, it, it feels kind of like there's a, there's, there's a loose end there. Um, there's not really a resolution, but knowing that he went off to war and died in the war, and by the way, we're in the North in this movie, thank goodness. Um, uh, but, uh, 
and so so that that makes sense and so i i, I when I, I this was the first version that i saw and then when i went and you know listened to the radio plays i was like oh that that doesn't make quite as much sense um so i think that was a good adaptational choice is to 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 bump that time up to coincide with with a, a national change in setting that alongside um the the personal lives I think this is interesting in terms of uh, Wharton's uh, kind of storytelling because when I I am a huge fan of uh, Scorsese's adaptation of The Age of Innocence, right. and one of the big elements of that story as he adapts it is the notion of you know, a quantum leap in the mores of society that th that the events that take place in the age of innocence are kind of the last gasp of this kind of living that the generation that is going to immediately follow after uh, these characters are not going to be caught up in these mores like these are mm -hmm. that, yeah, that and now in fairness Age, uh, Scorsese's Age of Innocence uh, lifts uh, a great deal from uh, uh, The Leopard by Lucino Visconti with uh, Burt Lancaster, which is also about, you know, kind of the aristocracy in transition and a character who realizes things are going to be way different after I'm gone, and that's probably a good thing, but I'm not going to survive in it. So this is, so what you're talking about is really, I think, improves upon what what Wharton would have wanted in any way, and that you know this you know the Civil War is going to change so many aspects of life, uh, you know, especially among you know the people who felt they were most insulated from it, you know, rich Northerners, mm -hmm. and. So this, you know, the old maid is uh, a story about uh, life and transition, right? And in terms of like the setting, like the place, I believe in at least one of the radio plays, there it's mentioned that they're in New York, like in New York City. Is that the case with the film as well? Um, because it feels more like this uh, uh, timeless, uh, uh, almost like place anywhere. This could happen anywhere, uh, uh, kind of story. After the after the war, the the characters are living in Philadelphia. Okay, all right, um, yeah, because I know in in the original play they talk about like Broadway, and um, in terms of like the orphanage and where uh, uh, Tina came from. But uh, but so let let's get to that. So we we have our our first first section, which is um, which is centered around. Uh, uh, Delia's wedding to to Jim to Jim Ralston, and then we jump ahead five years, and now uh, Jim uh, or Delia and Jim are married. They've been married. Uh, they have kids. Um, however, uh, Charlotte is not married, though she is getting ready to be married um, to Joe Ralston. Um, but she has a she has a nursery um, for orphan children. And in the film, this is um, like orphans of the war. 
and and so there again there's that's an adaptational thing that i think really works is that like there's a reason that she's doing all this it's not just you know generic i'm gonna have an orphanage for kids it's that she's there's there's an in-world uh reason for it and she's raising this nursery and she's got a bunch of kids and it's lovely um and and then the discussion becomes of, well, you're going to marry, you're going to marry Joe Ralston. Are you going to give up the nursery? And she's like, mm, I don't think I am. Uh, um, and this is, I, I, this is, I guess, because like I'm confusing, like I've ingested all of these adaptations over the course of like a single day. And so I'm having a little bit of trouble of keeping them all track. Uh, because they like reorder scenes um, depending on depending on which version you're listening to. But in the film, we start with the doctor coming over um, and giving Tina a checkup. And the doctor, who is played by in he's played by a Donald Crisp in the film, Doctor Lanskill, um, and he's the one that gives Delia away in the first scene. Like he's like the father figure um, because. Her father, uh, 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 Delia, or I believe, or Charlotte's father, or some some father figure died of of lung, of like lung a lung disease, and and we and so the information that we get from from this scene is that sh- that Charlotte is overly concerned with Tina's health, and then later it's revealed because she's worried about her father because it maybe it might be a hereditary thing. Yes, and. Landskull is, you know, since this is a Zoe Aikens joint, Landskull is the unmarried male character that is in their lives through the entire span of the story. And who knows all the deets um, and and is level-headed and, yeah, he's, he's the same. He's the same as the doctor from Outcast Lady. Uh, he's we, we we've seen this character before. Um, he's he's Gaston. <laughs> he's you we you, you know there's there's everything with Zoe. I I feel like I get Zoe Higgins by this point. <laughs> um, but uh, what I found interesting was that in all versions of this story, um, that it turns out that Joe or Joe Ralston, and especially in the film, is like totally okay with her keeping the nursery and that it's Delia who actually talks, has to talk him out of it. He gets a little territorial in that, well, you know, you're spending all your time at the nursery. And if I'm going to be your husband, then you need to make, you need to put me first. Well, that's not right. a fair request. It's not a fair request, but I'm making it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a specific exchange that happens in the radio plays that I don't think happens in the film about how, uh, like, I, I I can't remember the specific words. I, sh- I probably should have written it down. But I'm not sure if it happens in the film. Does Is it Jim or is it Joe who comes over with Delia in the film? In the film... Joe is a little more laid back about the nursery than Delia is. That right. It's in the radio plays where they kind of amp up his selfishness. Right. Um, because I think in the film, it's Joe that comes with Delia. And then it's Joe who's like, man, like, oh, this kid's sick or something. Get him off. And is kind of scared. Um and and we don't really see Jim until like the eve of the wedding, 
and when we meet him he's like oh yeah no she's she can have the nursery um i'm in love with her she's like and he's actually like a really supportive guy and like a really nice guy in the movie and i was like that's that's kind of neat but it turns out that that was a choice for the film and that's not from the the source material which i found a little surprising the nice joe that we see in this film that is probably a liberty taken by the screenwriter that uh, whereas Zoe probably had him being more of a well, you you've had your fun with the children now. You you, know, you need to be a wife to me. You know, mm-hmm. I, you want to you and because because that that would have that would have been the convention of the time. And you know, Zoe is you know, if if nothing else, an expert on convention. Yeah. I also wonder if maybe because in the in the radio versions there are a lot less male um, a lot smaller male presence than in the film. In the film there are, like we get scenes with Jim and with Joe and with Clem and with the doctor and with a few others besides, but in the plays it's really just one scene with Clem and one scene with Jim. Like one and a half scenes with with or with Joe and we and and then there's also the doctor but there's there's not there's not a huge male presence and I'm wondering if maybe like we've it's a real estate thing it's like we're gonna we're gonna put we're almost like dovetailing uh uh like Joe and Jim into like the same person and for the film they made him more almost like uh uh to try to make him distinct characters and so Jim is going to be the one that's a bit harsher that's married to Delia and then Joe's going to be more chill to have something to bounce off of it because we got to distinguish these people somehow. Uh. (laughs) It's column A and column B. Like uh, for the radio dramas, we've only got an hour. We can't get this many people onto the soundstage and have an audience watching this. Let's, you condense some characters and you get, you get them in, get them out. Uh, Also a very crucial detail this is only in this movie that Delia has her own children. In both of the radio adaptations, she's That's childless. Right. That's right. You're you're right. Um, now again, and... that might just be an economical decision of mm-hmm. uh, well, you know, we 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 can't we can't have a full cast doing this thing. So it's right. it's economy of scale, but it it also there is probably. A little of both, a little of both involved, or in the case of this, that it is expanding upon what what Zoe initially had in mind. Yeah, um, because in in the film she has a boy and a girl, um, D and and then um, the boy who is not important at all. <laughs> yeah, a, he, he, he's he, he's basically uh, the Chuck Cunningham of uh, this uh, story. That's a Happy right. Days reference. Um, <laughs> Uh, but so the but what we see in this film or what we see in this scene is the introduction of Tina, this young little girl who uh, Charlotte has a sp- who is Charlotte pays special attention to in the nursery, and then um, on the eve of her wedding, uh, she's like Delia is trying to talk is like are you gonna are you gonna give up uh, the nursery and she's like absolutely not, and she's like well what do you mean of course. Of course you're going to. And Charlotte's like, well, I don't think I can. And he's, 
because I can't give up my baby. And she's like, well, which one do you call your baby? I call my baby my baby. And she's like, no. And it turns out that when she went out west five years ago for a year, that she wasn't sick with lung fever or she was having a child. Yeah, and then it, it, but it was funny. It was in the first time I was watching, it took me until then for me to click that. Oh yeah, yeah. So well, of well, course, well, the fact the fact that the girl introduces herself as Clementina wasn't the well, right. Way. Is that yeah? At some point, I think in the in the film, it's Granny um, who asks. Uh, but and in the other version is Delia is like, oh, what's your name, Tina? What's your other name, Clementina? No, I mean your last name. Oh, she's a foundling. Um, and, but yeah, so Clementina, I'm like, oh, oh, oh. And then, of course, when Delia, Charlotte reveals this to Delia, she puts Clementina together, um, or rather breaks Clementina into Clem and Tina and realizes, you had a child with the person I loved. And she's like, well, I loved him too. And then this is the end of act one in both of the radio dramas is that we've got to do something about this. And so Delia goes down and effectively robs Charlotte of her life. (laughs) Uh, Definitely her agency. Right. That she thinks that she's being helpful in the sense that she doesn't give the full scandalous details Mm-hmm. You know, she r- creates this euphemistic cover story of, well, you know, she's sick again. She's got the lung disease you know, or she she's on the verge of getting the lung disease. And that's what, you know, she you know, she just she's just going through with it because, you know, she wants to, you know, be be br- be I be brave or what have you that but th- that she you can't marry her. She's too sick to be your wife. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she, initially she says, like, it's not honorable for you to marry her. And then he's like, what does that mean? And then she's like, um, uh, she's sick. And she, she can't quite get herself to say it um, in in the, in the film. And and in the and so this is where things start to get like reordered in in the the radio plays is like because there's a bit with the doctor um because jim or, or joe oh my word these two uh joe goes up to to dr lanskill and is like so uh so charlotte was sick right and he's like yeah everybody knew that and then he's like well if she got sick again it'd be bad right he's like yeah obviously but he never gets he never is like he's never let in and it's only afterwards that he realizes wait delia You've screwed Charlotte. <laughs> and and in the 39 radio adaptation, they have this interchange um, right then and there, but in the film, it, it doesn't come until much later. And I think it works when it's much later in the film when they're talking about when once everyone already knows everything later in the film. But, um, but yeah, uh, Joe goes and releases Charlotte and she, like, all dressed up in her wedding gown, and I release you. And Charlotte is now destined to become an old maid. We go to Christmas. Basically what's happening... Well, in the film, the next time we see what happens is Jim's death. Jim's death gets like a whole bit where where Jim is at an accident on his horse. And he's going to die. And in this scene, 
there's actually a great bit of where Joe and um, Joe and Charlotte interact, and they realize that Delia lied. <laughs> they both realize they're like, "Wait, you weren't you're you're healthy?" She's like, "Yeah, what?" And then they both like okay, let's stop having this conversation now and never speak of it again. And they never do. And Betty Davis, I gotta say, her her look of absolute fury, but hidden behind, she has to hide it, is just spectacular throughout this film. Because mm-hmm. she is containing so much pain and rage, but she can never express it until one moment towards the end of the film. And and it becomes this great thing of where throughout the film, people are saying things to her and about her and she just has to be there and take it. And and Betty Davis does a wonderful job um, at, at, at playing hurt, but but can't show it. Mm-hmm. The, the realization between the two of them when they each figure out that that they've not been told the truth or uh were you know given the opportunity to do so mm-hmm. you know that that you know again that's a very wharton-esque element in you know the you know i remember the moment near the end of uh, the age of innocence where uh daniel day lewis's uh son is you know talking with him and he is saying you know well my well, mother always knew. She said, "When she said when she asked you, you gave up the thing you loved the most." And he said, "She never asked me." So, but then Jim dies, and we move to Christmas, and and it's months later. And what happens is that Delia has a solution. Tina, Charlotte, you live with me, and you'll never have a you'll Tina will never have uh, uh will have will always have a home. And you'll never have to worry about a thing. You'll be supported. I'm a Ralston. I have the money. I have the station. And and you can you can you can be supported. And not everyone thinks this is a good idea. Uh, Delia's maid <laughs> uh, mentions like I truly don't think child even children of different classes should mix. And just like you screw you. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- that is some that is something that I really. Uh found interesting in that uh, uh, if I can take a minute to talk about uh, the character of uh, Dora who is kind of Charlotte's lifelong uh, mm. maid uh, Dora is played by an actress named uh, Louise Fazenda who had previously been a silent comedian and uh, when she did when she did this movie she had also just married uh, its uh, producer Hal Wallace who was at the time the head of production for Warner Brothers and then Wallace would become one of the biggest producers in Hollywood he's basically responsible for uh, many movies with uh, Elvis Presley and Jerry Lewis and uh, big costume epics like uh, Beckett and uh, Anne of the Thousand Days so he was uh, one of the biggest players in Hollywood, and her character, it, you know, her character is definitely like not black, but it's 
definitely kind of established as someone someone for whom English is a second language. That she's definitely right. some like, sort of immigrant. Um, that was something that I noticed right off, like in the first scene. Um, we like some of the language, the phrasing that she's using. I was like, oh dear, was this maybe left over from like some sort of like you know was this originally like Ebonics and then they put a white person in the role and it just, it's, it's, it was a little weird because of, of the way she speaks um, that I, I, I definitely picked up on that. But that there is that even between maids, you know, mm. that, that uh, Delia's maid looks down on Charlotte's maid. Right. That you know, if not by if not by race, then at least by you know, class, ethnic origin, or class, or you know, the ability to construct a grammatically correct sentence and use mm-hmm. linking modifiers. Yeah, and there's this whole bit in the film about like you know, can Tina pray properly? Um, and when she struggles to say amen, that it's like, uh, uh, amen, Tina. And she's like, amen. And he's like, okay, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, something that I don't, I'm not sure if there's anything to it or not, but the first few times we see Tina, she barely speaks. Mm-hmm. That, that she's very kind of taciturn and she's shy is what, is what, how it's described. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, there, I'm, knowing what we know now, I I am curious as to whether this might have been some sort of primitive depiction of being on the spectrum. Possibly. That that Tina is, Tina's on the spectrum? Yes. Because it is, because as we see, she do, she starts she starts opening up to you know she be, becomes more vocal and demonstrative un, under Delia's care but then mm-hmm. she also becomes more sort of willful and outspoken you know and yeah. now some of that might just be in the family because at the beginning of the movie you know we have uh, the the granny matriarch who i'm pretty sure is in the edith wharton original is supposed to be uh mrs mingott from the age of innocence who uh oh i had her on my name for just uh miriam margulies plays her in uh the scorsese film and you know and you know granny is this outspoken you know woman you know she's snapping at the doctor as he's trying to take care of her you know, we usually have one of the one of these archetypes in a Zoe Aikens film, for that matter. There's always some sort of ill-tempered elderly woman uh, right. who <laughs> doesn't take any guff, <laughs> but you know that of course she that she'll do the right thing later. That that um, that Charlotte has you know is initially very sort very. Uh, warm and demonstrative towards the girl, but always maintains a little bit of distance because she can't afford to have anybody find out that you know she's really her mother. Right, that she's a lady of secrets, you could say. Exactly. Uh. 
Yeah, and and this the button on the scene is that at the end, um, uh, Delia tucks in uh, 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 Tina to bed, and Tina calls her mommy with Charlotte right there, and it's just like ugh. And then montage, montage, montage. It is now we get a title card. Oh, guess who's getting married? And we get this is a nice recurring thing that it, throughout the film is that we always in like the transitions. It's always like some sort of letter like inviting you to the wedding of uh delia then to the wedding of charlotte which ends up not happening but then we next get now to the wedding of d because now uh we're now jumping ahead 20 years or, or 16 years 15 years a lot of years a bunch of years we're now in the 80s um and um and d is getting married uh 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 Blandy Mc uh, Boyface uh, has already gotten married the 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 old eldest child but and but Delia is is uh, see, seeing off her her second child um, and it's on the eve of her wedding and Charlotte is um, and then after the wedding they're gonna go to a party and Charlotte isn't having any of it and we get to see uh, Tina all quote quote unquote grown up played by jane bryan who is lovely in this film just so full of energy um but she calls delia mom and charlotte is aunt charlotte um in the radio she's cousin charlotte um and and it's just basically this this whole bit is allowing showing you how much charlotte has to go through just on any given day but especially right now of of the the how in the closet she is um of of her past like there there is an equivalent scene to um the one in lady of secrets when you know her daughter who's being played off as her sister is like you've never known love yeah and 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 Tina is also, you know, has has the hots for uh, Lanning Halsey, played by William Lundigan, who, by the way, is quite a snack in this film. Uh, <laughs> I was like, whew! Uh, uh, bisexual culture is having the hots for both Jane Bryan and William Lundigan in this film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, 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 could, I could surround them with Ritz crackers. Uh... That's a... Is that a you? Euf- All right. Anyway, <laughs> well, you, snack wouldn't kick oh, out of bed for eating oh, crackers. Yeah. Okay, yeah. it's not a euphemism. It's a dad pun. Got it. Cool. I'm. I've never been married, but you know, it's inevitable. I'm going to make dad level jokes. Everyone makes every 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 decent human being makes dad puns. Because um, because because they're cool. They're terrible, but they're amazing. Um, but anyway, so this whole this whole bit is basically just to showcase that um, that Charlotte is having a terrible time, um, and and yeah, it's 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 great. Everyone's great. I, I this is maybe out of all the bits, the what I well, what we do get to see, and this is something that I missed in the radio plays, is we get to stay with Charlotte as other scenes are playing out. And we get to see her taking, like, overhearing things and overhearing uh, uh, Tina t- basically just, you know, eviscerate Charlotte. And we get to stay with Charlotte, like, in with her, with her perspective 
overhearing all this stuff and we get to see these moments where like charlotte charlotte doesn't even know how to dance and then we get to see betty davis go up to her room and just have like hearing the music from afar off and just doing this little dance and then just looking up and saying clem like these just small moments is what this what this movement is great for and then when tina does go out with with land landing um there's a great bit where she's basically looking into the fire and trying to figure out like how am i going to react you didn't go out in your boots it's cold out and she starts out being kind but she just falls back into her her harshness because she's just she she's filled with with pain and doesn't know how to express it she she can't express her feelings well there it's twofold that it's it's her own you know suppression and 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 self-hatred but as she as she explains to Delia, she has taken this extremely harsh tone with Tina, partly so that no one would ever think that she's the real mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you know she's she's created this gulf between herself and her own child in order to you know distract people away from the possibility that they, that they are related. And also because now that uh, if she and Tina had been left to their own devices, like if, you know, if they had either married, if she had married Joe and been able to work it out with him over the fact that she had this illegitimate daughter, or if at one point, as she intended, she was going to, you know, just go off with her daughter to another place and raise her herself. Which she mentions at the end of this section of the film. That it, it, that under any other circumstance, she could have created a certain narrative for Tina's upbringing. But because now that Tina is in a high society situation, she is aware that she needs to be a certain way in order to, to thrive because it will be too scandalous otherwise. You know that, mm-hmm. in the sense, you know she's she is trying to, you know, like in any good tragedy, she is trying to prevent the same thing of happening to her child that happened to her because she sees that, you know, Tina is impulsive that she you know, that if she goes out to the dance with Lanning, you know, she could very well, you know, tum- tumble into something that they'll regret later. Who knows? They might do it, and then this whole thing would happen again. Yes, in the course of trying to prevent history, they have repeated it. So she, so she, she has taken this whole that once once she made the rueful decision to live with Delia, because uh, I think the what what I think is very effective in the movie that they leave out of the radio adaptations is the fact that after the failed wedding, she's already estranged from Delia. The only reason Mm -hmm. she comes home is because Jim is dying. It's like, okay, it would be churlish of me not to come and visit my sister in her hour of grief. Yeah. Cause she, cause in the film, like there's a thread with her grandmother um, and eventually, like, the grandmother talks about how I believe this is going to be my last wedding now that Charlotte's getting married, and eventually sh- uh, Charlotte ends up in the grandmother's house um, and living alone. 
Yes, because that's well, that's where she sets up uh, the orphanage. Right. right. Even though she does eventually get rid of the orphanage in the film, but she keeps Tina. Yeah. Yes. That. Yeah. Even after Joe uh, backs out of the marriage, she she reluctantly gives up uh, the the orphanage because probably she's planning on trying to go away with Tina and start over where nobody knows them. Now, now Tina is on this society path and oh well there's on, there's only one way to make sure that you know she's going to you know be a pr- properly accepted by society because as we've even seen before before Delia even decides to let her stay with them her own maid is saying well she's a foundling you know mm. she doesn't she can't pray properly uh, you know that in the radio play you know they refer to her as a hundred do- as a hundred dollar Hundred dollar baby, um, which we, this is the one thing, and I was maybe thinking of saving it for later, but I think I might as well just bring it up now. It was maybe well intentioned, but played into a lot of racist stuff uh, because originally, like when this is set in New York City, um, which is where there's and there's this there is this terrible neighborhood up on Broadway. And where she would been a foundling, and then she had been raised by a Negro family, as they say in the film. And so, having been raised by black people, the opening of the orphanage scene in the original play is kids yelling at Tina, calling her the N-word. Um, which I was like, oh, okay, um... And then there's the whole bit about how she was a hundred dollar baby that there was a hundred dollar bill pinned to her as she was left, as she, she was left out and then raised by, by uh, a black couple and how this in the in the play that this is another level of basically shame upon her that not only is she a foundling but she was raised by black people and that this is this is shameful and so I'm. And so part of me wondering is wondering is like, okay, so was this Zoe Aikens commenting on, you know, the problems of racism in this time and how even in the North that this was still an issue? Or is this Zoe Aikens just playing into those things? Because, I mean, as we've seen with the toy wife, she's not above uh, uh, just having a bunch of racist stuff in her movies. Yeah. Um, And so... I'm I'm glad it was omitted for the film. Um, it would have it would have just been incredibly distracting, and it wouldn't it probably would have aged terribly. Um, and and yeah, and like these characters, they're mentioned on on like one or two occasions, but we never get to see the original parent, the original carers for Tina. Um, and so it's just it's a whole issue that it's just like there's. A, way too much to unpack here and it's just like the implication is that you know charlotte went west had tina and you know came back and i'm opening an orphanage for war babies and here's our first here's our first one right here Mm -hmm. yeah and so in the film with the war orphanage it makes it that's again as an adaptational choice it's clean it fits thematically. It fits. Um, it fits the time period, and I'm I'm glad they made that change because in the original, it's a st- really strange stretch, and and there's there's a lot of potentially just really gross stuff in there. I I haven't read the, 
I wasn't like you have to pay like 10 bucks or whatever for like a copy of the original script. And so I just I didn't do that. But of the preview that they gave, it's just like, oh, my, there was clearly some some outdated stuff in here that would not play today. Um, And so that's unfortunate. But I'm glad that that the film, quote unquote, fixed it, Um, replaces it with a class thing. And the class thing, I think, is enough to carry through the film because, I mean, it's nothing that we haven't seen before in Zoe Aiken's joints is that, you know, we have to secure class. Uh, it's it's a, it's inherent drama. Yes, that wonderful scene you mentioned where Charlotte is rehearsing how she is going to react to Tina coming home late without her boots mm-hmm. and how you know she she does she she her instinct is to is to be sweet be but her she has to train herself how to be hard you have to be carefully taught <laughs> yeah. that's a south pacific and reference they do come home lanning and lanning uh has walked uh walked tina home and in the film or, I mean, in one of the plays, they, t- they talk about, like, oh, I hope you don't die. And I'm like, well, that's a strange thing to say. Um, but uh, but they come home, and they have a, just a great little moment in the foyer, or foyer, depending on which version you listen to. Um, and 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 they kiss they have a kiss and it's and it's it's uh, uh, Tina's first kiss and oh and then and then uh, uh, Delia comes down and is like, well, Lanning, I think it's about time you come home. Or it's about time you go home. And then Charlotte comes in and is like, ah, nope. This isn't his fault. This is all Tina. Screw Tina. She's the worst. And <laughs> Tina's like, come on, Charlotte. What's, what's got, what is, what is your deal? And, and it's this explosion of like, I don't want Lanning ever coming back again. And then Tina's like, Delia, it's your house. Please let him. And he's like, I'm leaving anyway. Um, so bye. And, and it's this shaming of like, you give away your kisses so freely. And he was never gonna, he's only, he wasn't, he was never going to do this for you because you have no station and it's awkward and he's never going to love you anyway. And just this real, it's, it's the harshness and it just comes out full force. And, and they and this is the point where where Tina says is like you've never known love you're just old and and like like dry and 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 I'm young and attractive and alive and and you've never known what it's like to be that and it's just yeah it's right out of lady of secrets where it's just like in but in this case it doesn't lead into the real reveal we already know the context and so it's just like oh charlotte i feel for you Charlotte makes a very salient point where it's like, if he really loved you, he wouldn't give a rat's aspirin about, you know, what I say. He'd be, you know, he'd be, he'd be fighting for you, but he's back. He's backing away because yeah, I called him out. He knows you don't have a title, so he can, he can, he has an out. Mm. Right. Which leads then Delia to say is like, well, she could have a title. She could have my name. And she could have a part of my my inheritance if she became a Ralston, if I officially adopted her, which, you know, would guarantee her a station, but would then even further rob Charlotte of any sort of control or or at least right to her child. 
and like this is Sarah and Son. Um, this is this is Lady. C- this is everything we've seen before, and and it just but it but it but it works here, and and then we fast forward to the final big the final section of the film, which is the eve of Tina's wedding. She's going to get married to Lanning. She has been adopted. Um, Jane Bryant and William uh, Landigan are just, they are, they are smooching so much. Like they're just, they're so much in love, which I was happy to see is like, they, they do look like a great couple. Um, and, but she's like, and I owe everything to you, Delia. I never knew who my parents were, but I don't care because you're the best mother I could ever have. And no one could ever be as good as you. Meanwhile, we're in the other room watching Charlotte, just die inside um and charlotte gave me the dress that she was going to wear at her wedding but i was like no i'm gonna wear yours just like it's just it's and it's and it's these things and it's not like and in these moments the score isn't because it and it again is it's a beautiful score throughout this film that is using um using the themes of of my darling clementine um is is it is integrated into the score throughout the film um and and another song which i'm blanking on but uh anyway but it's just it's a beautiful score but in these moments it's just silent and we're just watching charlotte go through the house try to prepare for the wedding meanwhile getting berated from the other room and and it's just and it's just brilliant but it it all leads up to Tina's gone to bed and now her mother has to come up and talk to her on the eve before her wedding and this is where the showdown happens because Charlotte's had enough she's going to go and she's going to tell Tina the truth and this and this interaction is is almost identical in all three versions that that we saw it's like the it's it's all the great dialogue, like the word hate. It's like, hate. how is hate a word even that we could use between us? It's like, hate has been the word between us this entire time because you've hated me for taking your child, because I'm taking Clem's child and all of this stuff. And and I'm finally going to, it's like, I was like, you. What? I was doing all this for you. I'm not. I'm not in a wicked person. It's like, well, I'm not a wicked person because I would never do this to you. I would never rob you of all of your agency of your entire life with your child. And and this is the bit in the film where I don't know if this was Zoe Aiken's words, but this was the bit where I was like, oh, you're making it all about a man. Where at the end of this scene, after the bed, after the bedroom scene, um she charlotte backs down and says is like oh we never really forget about the man who we always loved and ma- makes it all about clem which i felt was a little weird and out of place that it kind of put everything it was all about clem all along as opposed to about us two well um, um well this is where i would like to uh bring up uh the director of this movie is, is uh edmund golding and right. Edmund Golding uh, went on to make two bona fide classics with Tyrone Power, uh, the, the Razor's Edge and Nightmare Alley. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Nightmare Alley, of course, is uh, getting uh, re- redone, coming for Christmas this fall, uh, for Christmas this year. And in the Razor's Edge, there, I mean, that's, you know, Somerset Moam, but there is kind of a similar dynamic near the climax, which is that, you know, the the protagonist was going to marry this you know, society woman, but he decided, you know, after his wartime experience, you know, I, I, I can't do this conventional, you know, come home, be rich, get married thing. I'm going off to find myself. And he leaves and, you know, his betrothed marries another man and stays in society. And when he comes back, he's this, you know, enlightened individual who's, you know, seen, you know, all the sights and, and, you know, met the philosophers. And he is, he has taken up with a, a, a former friend of theirs who has, you know, fallen into alcoholism and, you know, tawdry affairs. And under his influence, she has begun to clean up her act. And, uh, his original betrothed is, you know, so jealous of of this arrangement that she kind of, you know, nudges the woman back into alcoholism and eventual death. And so there, so there's definitely a sort of, well, if I if I can't have this thing that I wanted, you know, be it a man or what he represents to me then in a sense i'm going to make sure no one else can have it either and that and so i feel like it's explored a little better you know granted under different circumstances by the same the same director the bedroom scene which is is i think it's the in the film it's the is the only version where we actually where there's actually a bedroom scene Yes. Uh, between between Charlotte and um, and Tina, because in in the play ver- in the two radio versions, she doesn't actually go in. Um, she can't she can't bring herself to do it. But in the film, it's actually a great scene where she goes in and she decides not to tell her, and instead uses the scene as a way to basically just have a full reconciliation where Tina has matured and. Charlotte has softened and there was like, I just, I just want you to be happy. And it's like, and I'm, I'm sorry. I was so horrible to you for all these years, but basically what they both end up saying to each other. And it's a great scene. And then, and then it goes back and then they have the, the dialogue between Delia and Charlotte about like, Oh, it was all about Clem and you never forget your first love. And I was just like, I don't know if we need all this dialogue. And it's cut from the, from the, it's not in the 39 version, which um, I was like, thank goodness. Um, but it is in the 46 radio version. There is a, there is that bit, which I was, I just, I, I don't know why I don't really, I don't really, it, again, like it feels like you just, you just made it all about Clem Spender. I thought he was supposed to be gone. I don't know. Uh, I don't recall, uh, any credit in the sense of in the 46 edition of broadcast, the, there is a writer named Arthur Arendt who is credited with the adaptation right. for radio. The, right. the Lux broadcast doesn't credit anyone for 
cutting it down for radio, but there is an actual appearance by Zoe Akins speaking right. <laughs> at the end of the episode, which is you know great because it's so rare to hear any of mm. these people from that era of filmmaking you know right. in their own voice speaking and i just got to say she doesn't sound like her picture like <laughs> she's like her voice sounds a lot fancier than like the pictures that you see of zoe akins where she seems like this relatively uh you know i don't know humble's not the right word but just like very simple girl and then you hear a voice and she's speaking like this and she's very oh, da, 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 da. and I'm like oh Zoe <laughs> you sound fancy you know it but... might just be you know, it might just be you know you know dare I say it something to soft soap the audience with and yeah and and I'm wondering in that whole experience like because it feels like it's almost rehearsed what she ends up saying or she's talking with Cecil B. DeMille um and yeah, and so I was like, it's really cool to hear her say it. I wonder how many of these words are actually her own, or how much is like, hey, say this for the camera or for the audience. It'll it'll work. Her presence on that broadcast would lead one to believe that she supervised the trimming yeah. of the play for for that medium. Right. Yeah, I think that was the implication. So so the the emphasis on you know the memory of Clem is probably you know a dude's in interjection. Right. It's it's in the yeah because we see it in the Casey Robinson version. Yeah, yeah, because we see it in the Casey Robinson version and we see in the Arthur what was his last name? Arthur Arendt. Arendt uh uh adaptations, but we but it's in Zoe Aiken's uh, uh, c cut that we get to see uh, again. We I couldn't get access to the original uh, play. That's not there. But yeah, and so but then we have the interaction between Delia and and Tina and and sent off because Charlotte at the end is like she's your daughter. Go see off your daughter, and she runs away crying. Um, but Delia is like, you know what? Let me tell you, and she doesn't tell the whole truth. But she does tell part of it is that Charlotte gave up her marriage um, so that she, you could she could keep you because she wouldn't give you up. Um, and there is a little bit of a lie in there in that Delia is like, really, Delia gave up Charlotte's marriage. Um, and 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 I forgot to mention that there's the conversation with the doctor, uh, with Dr. Lanskull, um, who it's this great thing is like you basically altered this woman's destiny without her consent and in the in the and the cons word consent is used which i was like cool um uh, and like and so like and there's this conversation like was that a mistake or not was it a sin and he's like and it's like well if it was a mistake i certainly hope that you've repaid it now um and and in the in the thirty nine uh, uh, radio, that's at like right after it happens. But I like that it's it's at the very end of of the film, where it's le basically reflecting on the entire events of the film. Is like, well, was it a mistake? Maybe, maybe not. I ho certainly hope you've paid for it. Um, but but uh, uh, but uh, I keep getting all the names mixed up. Delia says to Tina, "Is like, why don't you?" Now, in the radio version, she's like, why don't you just go make it up to to Charlotte right now? 
Um, but in the film version, he's like, well, this is what I want you to do. Is that before, like after you've kissed me and said goodbye everyone after your wedding tomorrow, the last moment before you head off with, with Lanny, you you give your final kiss to Charlotte. And, and it was at this point that I was like, oh boy, here we go. And then the final scene of the film plays and Betty Davis just plays it off magnificently because the camera does this thing where we're at, we're at like very much below eye level for this final shot moment of the film where we're, we're at this overhead shot for the actual like them going out of the church, them getting into the carriage, all this stuff. But then we move in to the kiss of like, where, where's Charlotte? Where's Charlotte? Charlotte comes up. Yes. And gives a final kiss to Charlotte and then they're off. And then we have this shot and it's the final shot of the film of, of basically (laughs) I'm I'm choking up now of, of Charlotte walking out like after kind of following after the carriage and just this moment you can see her face just all of the emotions of was it worth it it was it was worth it I did it she loves me well and there's a motif throughout the entire film that in crucial moments we see Charlotte alone and the room that she is in grows even darker where mm-hmm. we're just seeing her at her at her at her gloomiest you know just like the weight of everything that she has done is just becoming too much and in this moment she is bathed in light mm-hmm. it is such a dramatic turnaround from all yeah. of the solitary moments we have had with her and right and and f- Forgive me if I'm mistaken here, but is it the first time that we're outside? Uh, aside, uh, aside from the the visits to the the train station, from from the moment that Charlotte has accepted Delia's offer to live with them, she mm-hmm. has been confined to inside to the, house. the house. And I don't know what it is about that last scene, but maybe it is that like we're finally like, outside, and it's just. And you're right, we are bathed in light, where it's almost like a you are there quality to it. Where like I can feel myself out on that street. Like it's just it's an early morning, it's a bright morning, it's and and it's just and and that's right. The other thing that Max Steiner, the the composer for the film, the other tune that he's playing with is Here Comes the Bride. I I blanked on that. Um but uh where it's and and but at the end of the film it's just the my darling clementine um or clementina uh, <laughs> but and it's just this beautiful beautiful finish and the this film as a whole i think like it doesn't it doesn't have the Edmund Golding is an efficient director to be sure he does a good job with this film. He's no George Cukor in that he's wringing every single tear possible out of you and or with, in the case of Zaza, just giving you the lightest, most delightful time. Um, but he's efficient here and he, and it, and it, to brilliant effect, just uh, with Betty Davis and the camera work and the, and the score, it just all comes together of 
beautiful, beautiful finish. Yes, yes. a crucial detail that what well, you know for in, for her, you know, something borrowed, something blue. Once again, Clem's cameo has been given to Tina. Right. So it it, it has worked its way back to where it belongs. It's it's all full circle. And uh and also that I think this I you know, I don't know whether this would have been on Aiken's mind or not, especially since in uh the radio adaptations uh Delia has no children. But mm-hmm. that by the end of this movie uh she uh, Charlotte and Delia are now equal. Mm-hmm. They are both without both husbands. Alone. They are both without children. You know, they are both in their late forties, and thus will never be considered marriage material again <laughs> because it's you know before nineteen hundred, and we don't have cougar culture. <laughs> but that you know, in the in the greater scheme of things, she's recognized. All right, we're we're the same now. You know, time time to go meet our fate. Time to grow old and die. <laughs> we have we have done our part. And great movie. Yeah, the the film or the plays they don't end the same way. The play uh the 39 play ends with we don't uh uh we the final interaction is between Tina and Charlotte, but it's um but it's Charlotte going to or Tina going to Charlotte's room and saying, "Thank you for everything. I love you." And it's that reconciliation scene just m- moved, uh, translated so that it is the final moment as opposed to the as opposed to uh, moment with Charlotte, moment with Delia, and then again with Charlotte at the finale. Um, and then in the forty six version, it's edited down even further, where it's just go off to Charlotte, and that's the end. Um, and so. I I I I really think that, <laughs> that the film's version works best because it really just seeing and seeing that kiss and seeing Betty Davis just everything melt away and just feels like I did it I did it I did it she loves me is <laughs> it's so worth it she loves me and she is not going to be subject to the same fate that I was right she is she can she can have a life of her own with someone that she truly loves, which she was denied because Clem passed away. And uh, uh, one tiny little footnote I want to mention in the, in the U.S. Steel adaptation for the brief time, uh, Clem is played by an actor named Lamont Johnson, mm-hmm. who later went on to become a director of uh, film and television and uh one of uh, his standout works was a made-for-TV movie called That Certain Summer, which was one of the very first uh, movies of the week for television to take a you know positive and non-exploitative uh, uh, depiction of a homosexual relationship. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, in the 46 version, though, I, we, we didn't mention is that that is the only version of this thing where we get 
something set before the events of any of the others. We actually get to see the only time we get to hear Clem in that in that radio play is him going off to Italy the first time. And and then we get then we jump to two years later, aka the beginning of all of the other adaptations. Um, which is when Delia is about to get married. But but in the forty six version it's Delia Clem is going away and Delia is saying, I'll wait for you. And then cut to two years later, it's 1833, and she's getting married, and Clem is returning. Yes, that you know, that for uh, for for whatever re for whatever reason there there is, I don't know if it was in the stage edition or if it was in the the Wharton novella, but the at in some previous incarnation of the old maid, the the story opens before the uh delia's marriage that it where it's where we're seeing uh clem leave her and her promise to wait Mm -hmm. before she changes her mind yeah i don't think we personally i personally don't think we really need that bit i think it works just fine starting it i think it i think it works better with with the wedding essentially the wedding structure where almost every section is about a wedding um and in the film especially by like adding the character of d and it's her wedding it just it just creates this thematic through line of these are the moments in the people's lives um, uh, uh yeah uh, f- uh four weddings and a christmas yep yep <laughs> i see what you did there uh, <laughs> But uh, what what's funny is that that takes place after a funeral <laughs> because it's after it's after Jim's death. Uh, yeah. So what you're saying is that four weddings and a funeral is just a remake of the of the old maid. <laughs> um. All right. So that pretty much is that's the old maid. Um. Zoe Akins. What do we got? We have stories of. A loved one who passed away, untimely, tragically, and and in many cases she can't tell of it. She the the woman can't tell of her love, but he died in a war. We have stories of of secrets about keep keeping secrets about their husbands or about their children, about their relationships. Um got to keep the secrets we have mothers trying to retain uh, a a relationship with their children whether it's because the husbands are trying to take them away it's because the husbands sold them away it's because other families are carried for the children and the mom just has to get back to her child whatever it takes and then all of the stuff with class like this is this is zoe akins this is what we've seen over the over these past between sarah and son and and with these past six episodes this is what zoe akins is interested in and it really just begs the question like knowing what we know about her personal life which we discussed is that you know she was married to a man for very shortly before he passed away i want to know where that kid is where is that secret child because clearly she has all of this material is about children who like with except for Camille and Zaza um it's all about there's it's about these kids and about mother's relationship with their kids and i'm just like where 
where is Zoe Aiken's kid? I want to know. <laughs> or was she the kid? Or was she the kid? And yeah, who knows? Maybe. Yeah, because we, we literally have two stories of mothers who are living with their children but can't tell their children that they are their mother. We have stories of mothers who like it's it's just it's the same story over and over and over again with 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 different settings and different with different uh uh, uh dressings and almost always involving a uh kindly desexed uh, older man <laughs> right yeah. hovering hovering on the fringes yeah so just this is the first time that on the screen's margins that we've come to the conclusion of a of a of a of a series. Um, we might we're after this um, we're gonna go back to Dorothy Arzner. Um, we're gonna pick up where we left off and continue and fi hopefully finish uh, the remainder of Dorothy Arzner's filmography. Um, but and then after that we might return to Friends of Dorothy maybe try and find films of some of her other collaborators um that 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 remains to be seen of how of how that might progress but as a kind of a, a wrap up of Zoe Akins is just like she is definitely she had her shtick and she did it over and over again and in a lot of cases it resulted in some pretty great films outcast lady lady of secrets um Camille the old maid um they're all all of these you know melodramatic stories of of relationships and whether they be between two lovers or between a, a, a mother and a child all of these great films and then Zaza which I honestly think is my favorite um maybe it's just because it stands out from the pack as being different from all the others and that it's this very light uh, uh, non-tragic tragic story uh, but yeah everything but everything but the toy wife which sucked uh, <laughs> it just yeah I I I, I, it's interesting now that feeling like I know a filmmaker, um, a, a, that is, I've, I've, yeah, uh, the screen's margins is about highlighting underseen or under, under, uh, underrated filmmakers. And now I know the work of Zoe Akins and I'm, it's, at the not the end of a journey because we've got honor among lovers we have some other zoe aiken screenplays in the dorothy arzner uh, uh catalog yet but it's just i'm this 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 was fun <laughs> yes well because uh, uh, you know again you know, for the period that we've been exploring it has you know aside from dorothy arzner there are not nearly enough uh, female creatives that got to have their work done and mm -hmm. let alone be recognized in a canonical fashion. So if we can open up the playlist and get, and get some more stuff into people's consciousness, then this has been a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and who knows? 
more Zoe Aikens films might become a uh, uh, quote unquote of available to watch um, over time. Uh, there's yeah, there's there's a, there's a handful of other screenwriting credits of hers, and then of course there's all the other plays and adaptations of those plays that we could feasibly do. But but I mean, I'm I, the thing is, is I kind of at this point I don't really feel like I need to do that because I'm pretty sure I got a handle on Aikens at this point. Um, well, I think when we get to Honor Among Lovers, we will see a different side of Aikens. Okay. As among and... other things, there's no kids. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, did she and she wrote? Did she write the screenplay for Christopher Strong as well? Yep, she wrote. The, she wrote um, the adaptation of Christopher Strong. So, so yeah, we have we have some Zoe Akins uh, uh, left left to go, and so I'm I'm looking forward to that. But uh, yeah, that's a uh, she's a friend of Dorothy. She's there's there's a lot of queer code, a lot of queer coding in some of her films, but. Interestingly, not all as many of her films as as I thought m- might might appear. Um, her her central her central focus seems to be about motherhood, which again is like interesting because as far as we know, she's not a mother. Um, if this is like mommy issues about someone a mom who abandoned her or never revealed herself to her or something, that's that's something else. But it just yeah. Um, I, I I'm not sure. I don't know how to end the series, man. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's we've we, we've we've taken we've taken a deep dive into a uh, a woman that, by all accounts, has not really gotten a serious appraisal in a long time, and I I I think uh, that we're the better for it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the final message is go watch these movies. Go watch, go watch Zaza. Go watch Camille. Go watch The Old Maid. Go watch Outcast Lady and Lady of Secrets. Um, watch everything but The Toy Wife. Don't watch The Toy Wife. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to be digesting a lot of glass on that one. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, your, 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 col- your colon is going to be very angry with you after <laughs> that movie. Yes, as well as your small and large intestines and your stomach and esophagus and pretty much all of the blood that you also lost. <laughs> um, uh, oh, this is just a random anecdote, but I stepped in glass, uh, I think it was yesterday, um, and for the first time in a long time that I can remember that I stepped in some glass and it was just this little, this little, uh, it looked like just this little square of glass. And then I got some tweezers and I pulled it out and it turns out that it was like this spike that went in like a whole, like half inch into my foot, um, into, into the, into the ball of my, of, of my foot. And I was just like, Oh my word, that is huge. Um, and so basically that's the toy wife. Uh, <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Um, so, all right. Uh, you know, Zoe Akins, you were a friend of Dorsey. So thank you for being a friend. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for being a friend, Zoe Akins. It was, it was a pleasure getting to know you. Um, and, and long may our friendship continue. Let's, let's wrap this up, Mark. Where can, where can people find you? Uh, I am on uh, Twitter at 
T-H-E underscore H-O-Y-K, The Hoik, a phonetic pronunciation of my name. Uh, I just recently posted a uh, large thread of uh, images from the dawn of uh, home videos, uh, you know, a lot of uh, brochures and you know the, the very first movies that were released on video cassette. So scroll down and look at that. I think you'll see a very interesting bit of history. I have a blog at uh, projectorhasbeendrinking.blogspot.com. Uh, some uh, wonderful essays I've written there, and uh, I uh, have essays posted at uh, the New Beverly Cinemas website at thenewbev.com slash blog. Uh, I'm hope, hoping I'll have some new material up there soon, but for now, you're going to have to hit that what, read more button a few times to see uh, what I've done, but uh, some stuff there I'm very proud of. All right. Um, and then uh, if you're listening to this, that means that you're a patron. So thank you very much for, for supporting us. It, it does mean a lot. It does give us incentive to think that, oh, we're not, you know, just maniacs off in our own little corner yelling into the into a void. I mean, we are doing that, but, you know, it makes us feel <laughs> a little bit more valued. Uh, so thank you very much for, for listening. Um, if you are a patron, then you can go on and vote in our polls for other stuff. Um, we've got other uh, uh, Patreon-exclusive series. Um, this is coming out at the end of May of 2021, and for the month of June... Um, you might notice that the up that the new podcast slowed down dramatically. It's I and I just want to tell you it's not because um, we're we're not doing anything. It's because we're too busy recording podcasts to release them. Um, and so yeah, we've got we've got a bunch of stuff in the pipeline, and and so yeah, very very excited for the continuance of of the all of all of the stuff here at the screen's margin. So. Thank you very much for listening because we know that there's a pull these days when it comes to films to focus only on the big and the mainstream stuff. So thanks for spending some time with us here today, here on the margins. Good night. Oh, 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 oh.